0: welcome to Let's Pod This. My name is Andy Moore. We are just days away from the beginning of the 2022 legislative session, and boy, oh boy, what a wild week it's been. In today's episode, we're going to be talking about the state budget, how it's looking, what we expect the governor and the legislature will prioritize when it comes to spending your money, my money, our money, taxpayer money. And uh, we're also going to, you know, talk about what issues we hope they'll consider, uh, what things we think that they should be talking about in those budget negotiations. Here to discuss these matters are my colleagues Bailey Perkins-Wright. Hello, Bailey. Hello, Andy. And Scott Melson. Hello, Scott. What's up, dude? What's up? We are also joined by special guest this week, Emma Morris, who is a Policy Analyst for Healthcare and Revenue at the Oklahoma Policy Institute. Welcome, Emma.
1: Hello, thank you for having me.
0: Before we get into discussing the state budget, uh, we wanted to talk about two rather extraordinary news stories this week that do deal with state funds. I think it all weaves together um, because it deals with two of the state's largest agencies, I think. I don't remember which I think education is probably the largest agency, but I don't know if health is next or OMES. Do you guys have any feel for what's the second largest agency by by revenue size? It's probably DHS. Healthcare.
2: Probably? D, yeah, I would say probably DHS, uh, Healthcare Authority due to Medicaid oh, sure. and right. yeah,
3: that's probably right.
0: That's fair. All right, of our seven hundred plus state agencies. All right, so first up, uh, the Tulsa World reported earlier this week that State Auditor Cindy Bird had reported to the legislature that her office's audit into Epic Charter Schools, dun dun dun, um, for gross misuse of public education funds was quote the largest abuse of taxpayer funds in the history of the state. That's a bold statement. Um, auditor Cindy Berg. was not we have sure.
3: Had, if, we have had some shady abuse of taxpayer funds yeah, in our yeah. in our past, so that is quite the claim.
2: And it feels like this investigation has been going on for at least a couple of years now. So it seems like our state auditor has really gotten the details and the information needed to be able to make such a claim at that level yeah
0: and so i think um osbi right the state bureau of investigation uh has just completed their year-long investigation and i think prior to that is when the auditor did theirs uh and the the interview in the tulsa war article was basically asking cindy bird well why hasn't the ag filed criminal charges yet and and cindy bird was like i don't know like it's a I mean, she all but said, it's a clear-cut case. This was criminal. It's the largest misuse, or largest abuse of taxpayer funds in the history of the state. And he should be filing charges. Now, well, I, Twitter I,
2: speculates uh, it's a follow the money kind of issue. But that's right. not just what Twitter's saying.
0: <laughs> right. Follow those well,
2: campaign donations.
0: It, Twitter says it by uh, by posting screenshots of the state's Guardian, right? Their ethics reporting campaign donation website. So it's not just pure speculation. It's, I guess, the intent is the speculation. But the numbers are what the numbers are, right? And the numbers are that the co-founders of Epic Charter Schools, uh, two guys, Ben Harris and David Cheney, who are the guys that are being investigated here, are essentially mega donors in our state, right? They have uh, donated to Governor Stitt. To Education Secretary Ryan Walters, who is currently running for state superintendent, um, they donated to State Senator Zach Taylor, who has been an outspoken advocate for vouchers. Right, which is, I think, listeners probably know, but vouchers are basically a way to move redirect public funding from education from public schools to private schools or charter schools. Um, and according to the the Guardian system, if you look up each of them and their campaign donations over the last I guess six years, right? Since twenty fifteen, they have each individually donated more than a hundred thousand dollars to state either statewide electeds or state legislatures, or state legislators. Anyway, a hundred thousand dollars in five years is a lot of money.
3: It's a lot, it's a hundred thousand and it's a hundred thousand each, right? It's hundred thousand each. And and I don't know if uh, Mr. Harris and Mr. Cheney have other sources of revenue that would allow them, like would give them the means to, to just drop a hundred grand on political contributions. Um, but given the revenue that they've gotten from Epic, you could think that this is like taxpayer money into Epic, into their pockets now into politicians right like it's a circle like these are tax dollars that are flowing through epic to them and then back around to the politicians who write the laws that seems uh
2: one scott it's just ironic that the conversation lately has been the money should follow the student the money should go you know not just to an institution when we're seeing the money go into the pockets of some Shareholders, right? Like, and I think that's something that all Oklahomans should be concerned about, especially with the, you know, we, we focus a lot on our brick and mortar public institutions, but this should really present a red flag of, of where are our public dollars going um, for, in this virtual education setting.
3: And it's also important to know that these are just the these are just the donations that are publicly reportable to individual candidates this doesn't account for donations to packs or super packs right Um, because depending on the entity those are not tax deductible but they also don't have to be publicly reported um individual candidate donations are capped out of 2700 bucks so i mean a hundred thousand each at three thousand a pop so They've either each given like one politician 30 donations of 2,700, or they've given 30 politicians um, one donation of 20. 20- like they've they've done some work here, right? Like this is a lot of money that's um, either being spread out over a number of people or over a number of years or both.
0: Right, right. And that's. It's important to know, like, this also doesn't, this is just them as individuals. If they're married or anything, it doesn't include their spouses, right? So it could be twice as much for all we know. And yeah, you, they are limited by law to that $2,700 per candidate per election, right? So you can give in the primary, in the runoff, in the general, all of that. And I didn't go through to like, see how much was in each cycle or whatever. All I saw was the total was $100,000 for one and like 105,000 for the other in five years, that's a lot of, or six years, that's a lot of money. And um, it, I think, has gone to a number of politicians, right? And I also haven't had time yet to go back through to see if all their donations lined up with how people voted on some of these things. But it's safe to say that, I think if we were going to recap, let's do it this way. the Epic co-founders give money to politicians. The politicians then changed laws right, to allow Epic and other schools like them to get more taxpayer money. Those co-founders then illegally routed a huge chunk of that money that went to Epic into their private, you know, quote, school management business, right? Epic Youth Services, isn't that what it was called, right? So they had this private company that was managing Epic Charter Schools and they were skimming a pretty hefty percentage off of that over to this private business which is a black hole right it's not a public entity so we don't know anything about it and they just kept doing that until they got caught right uh then the state auditor uh, was called in to do an investigation her office investigated it was uh obviously criminal enough that osbi got involved which is never a good sign they investigated for a whole year and it's all done And yet, no charges have been filed yet. Now, they might be in the future, but they haven't been filed yet, even though all this has happened. And uh, also, we still see in the news that Secretary Walters and Senator Taylor are continuing to push for vouchers, which would allow for more of this, let's see, uh, rerouting of money to schools like Epic. Now, these two guys... have any affiliation with epic anymore the board severed all those ties but i wouldn't be surprised given how these things typically play out right if they are in the process or have already set up some other kind of charter school right like usually you see folks that develop some kind of racket like this they will keep doing it until they can't do it anymore Uh, well we also
2: see some diversion conversation with the rise of teachers getting paid six figures right that 100k Um, To me, that just sounds like, let's not talk about this. Let's look over this way. But I will say I am grateful for Cindy Bird's political courage and being willing to continue to shed light on this issue and to continue to take on some powerful folks who have a lot of money, right? And who are giving it to a lot of folks. So,
0: yeah. this is why our state has a state auditor. That's a statewide elected office, right? Because the people need someone to go in and investigate this kind of stuff, right? To to look at the books, to look at the policies and procedures to really work it out. And isn't, so it said that her office did an investigative audit and that's like the high level audit, right? Don't they, they have like a regular audit? That's like, let's see your books. And then Then there's like an investigative audit, which is.
2: You've been accused of something.
0: Mm -hmm. They're looking for criminal wrongdoing. Yeah. Scott, were you about to say something?
3: I was, and then I changed
0: my mind. (laughs) Okay, fair enough. Well, uh, so that was one thing. That was on, I think, Tuesday of this week. And then on Thursday, the Frontier was reporting that. Uh, the Attorney General, John O'Connor, is now refusing to release the investigative audit of the State Department of Health. And his office won't even really say why, right? And so as we just said, investigative audits are that high level of audit conducted by the state auditor's office um, that are looking for criminal or civil wrongdoing. And when the frontier asked, like, why won't you release it? They basically said, we don't have to. But it's and it's clearly not good, right? And this is looking into again misuse of public funds related to uh buying COVID supplies, you know, early on. There was, or the, some point,
2: was it the Hydra, what's what's the term? Yes, you know. that that word. Yeah. Remember we we purchased <laughs> two million of that and then it was like, my bad.
0: <laughs> right. It's in the garage though. We got it still. Well, and, and part of this was because they spent like $10 million on stuff that they had not received. And now in follow-up, they're like, well, we either got it or we canceled it. And we're working on getting a refund. And it's just like, this is taking a long time for $10 million. That's a lot of money.
2: And then Andy, don't forget that we're building a whole facility for a new department of health in a whole nother community that may also be tied into whatever these findings are.
3: Did is cindy bird is she not allowed to release the audit herself like is that the sole purview of the ag or can the state auditor not release an audit that she has done
0: i'm very interested in that as well um they the because uh, the way it was worded was that she gave the audit to the ag
3: now but did did, did the ag's office did mike hunter ask for the audit because yes. That may be the determining factor. If Hunter asked for it, then it may be that she can't release it because she didn't initiate it. Right. Like, man, I wonder if that's the, I wonder if that's oh. the deal,
0: but does the auditor initiate anything on their own? I thought generally they, they had to be asked to go in and look at something. I thought they could in
3: certain circumstances, but maybe you're right. We had, uh, we had one of, we, we have, we have had, I think, uh, uh, state auditor bird on when she was a candidate, we had the previous state auditor on when had a really had a, had a great conversation with him. Um, he was working his cattle at the time we talked to him and it was awesome. Um, he was literally
0: in a field running cattle when he did the you cows mooing. That was a good episode. <laughs>
3: um, um, but but I'd have to go back and revisit that. You may be right, it may be that she cannot initiate an investigative audit without a request from the speaker, uh, the governor, or from the AG. That may be, yeah, you
0: may be. Accurate. We'll have to, uh, I'll send some text messages here in a it moment is, if we can get an answer while we're. It recording. is just, it
3: is just infuriating though, right? Because, like, you know, we hear all this. Uh, I mean, it's just. I don't know. I'm not going to say anything we don't already know, but like we hear all of this talk about transparency and good government and we're standing up for the people of Oklahoma. We're fighting back against Biden. Like we're, we're fighting back against the federal wasteful spending and federal overreach. But Oh, here we have an audit that looks at how the health department may have misspent, you know, somewhere in the neighborhood of $20 million and we're not going to share it with the public. Right. Um, I mean, it's just the, the hypocrisy um in order to do political damage control um is just is just mind blowing. And it's a credit, I think, to our local journalists who have done really a great job of trying to shine a spotlight on this. And obviously we're trying to do it here here too. But I don't know I I don't know what the political pressure points are on John O'Connor to try and and get him to release this. I mean obviously he's running for election for He's trying to get elected this year. He's not running for re-election. He's never been elected, but he is running to be elected back into his current position. Um, so I did. Yeah, I hope this becomes a campaign issue. You know, I would like to see him have to answer questions about this in in a public forum or a debate or, you know, something.
2: Well, and didn't the epic investigation exist? Before the current AG's tenure. So it that had to have been triggered when Mike Hunter was AG. And to me, that makes a difference between what's happening with the audit of Department of Health and the epic situation. Because I wonder, too, if that hadn't been initiated when it was, you know, a year and a half, two years ago would we even have the information and, and the, the light shed that that we have on that area of fraud and fraudulent activity?
0: Yeah, I'm very curious what's in this audit, right? What it says about how um, how some of this stuff is playing out internally in these organizations, right? And this, this is the whole reason that we have sunshine laws, like the Open Records Act, the Open Meeting Act, right, is so that the public can be a check on our government, right, so that we have some oversight, um, that we can be our own watchdog. So I'm going to find out. I, Scott, I think your question is uh, very important, right, and I don't know what the laws are if they're, if the auditor is allowed to release it. Now, we all know that on occasion, documents make their way into the public hands, right, through, uh dubious means, right? Or or well-intentioned, but secretive means. Um, I'd love for someone to drop off an envelope with this audit on my front porch. <laughs> that would be uh, a huge help. I think on behalf of Oklahoma, I'd be happy to share that with the media, but um, I don't have any ins into that office. I don't know anyone willing to risk there.
3: We won't job. ask any
0: questions. Just, just give me the audit. So we'll see. It, I think this also highlights uh the politics of the position of attorney general right there was some there were some cases that hunter was working on when he was in office and then he resigned and they went away and now there's stuff like this that disappears for most of us right when you come in and you take someone else's position uh like someone leaves a job you're the next person hired you continue what work they were working on already right and
1: but it it's important like
2: to remember up- that John O'Connor was not hired by the people of Oklahoma he was appointed by this governor right and so he may be operating based on that appointment status right um because what happens you know my my assumption is that he'll run for uh the seat permanently whenever uh the the attorney general seat is open right and what does that look like for support of your base and all of that if you are fighting against the person who appointed you, right? Or the, the 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 current um leadership. And so that that puts him in a difficult position. So at least with Mike Hunter, he was elected by the people of Oklahoma and that's who he had to be accountable to more so than someone who has been appointed to this role.
3: Right? Like that's the thing. Like like cause he's because he's running for the spot right now. Like he's up, he's running for AG in uh, November of this year, um, and that's what I'm saying. I I would love to see this become a point of contention in the campaign. Um, assuming he gets out of the primary, I'd love to have him ask have to answer questions uh, about this because I think there's no question. I mean, I maybe there's a question. I haven't seen the audit, um, but yeah, I think you're right, Bailey. That this would not make the governor look. Great.
0: Yeah, really, I think that's a really great point. He was not elected by the people, right? He was not chosen by us to be our AG. He's appointed uh, by someone who is in a higher office that almost certainly has his own agenda, right? As evidenced by the mountain of lawsuits they filed regarding the McGirt decision a mountain of which they've lost almost they've lost all of them so far right <laughs> so um that it seems like it's been all hands on deck for that issue alone and everything else is like eh, who who cares waste fraud abuse nobody cares
2: yeah and and i mean it's typical for elected leaders to make political decisions in campaign years right but andy to your point like this is too Great of an issue, and to Scott's point, this is a lot of money. You know, just to say oh, we're not going to tell the people because we don't want to and we don't have to, right? Um, and I'm interested too to see you know what kind of discussion comes from that, especially over time. Like you know, if both of them are are elected in November, all of a sudden, do we get transparency legislation and, and acts and, and you know? January 2023, like, <laughs> but during a campaign year, it's very typical for people to what to sweep under the rug what doesn't make you look the best, but elevate the things that are going to make you shine for that election year. But this is just too important for that.
0: This reminds me. Let me read you a quote from uh, an an Oklahoman story in July of last year, 2021. Quote, regarding professional competence, which encompasses such qualities as intellectual capacity, judgment, writing, and analytical abilities, knowledge of the law, and breadth of professional experience, the committee found Mr. O'Connor to be not qualified. The consensus based on confidential peer review is that Mr. O'Connor lacks sufficient litigation experience going to the depth and breadth of his law practice to date. His judgment was also found to be deficient. The committee also evaluated the integrity of Mr. O'Connor by considering his character and general reputation in the legal community, as well as the nominee's industry and diligence. In this category as well, Mr. O'Connor was found to not be qualified. The confidential peer review revealed several instances of ethical concerns, including candor with the court, evidence of overbilling clients, and billing practices criticized by courts, an improper ex-part communication with the court, and improper contact with adverse parties in litigation that is the uh from a letter dated august 18th 2018 from the uh, american bar association their letter about mr o'connor a.g o'connor when he was um uh, nominated to the uh federal bench right so it does seem seem relevant. seems bad seems bad. <laughs> not great dan yeah
2: or maybe it doesn't seem surprising right that the behaviors of what we're seeing align with that written testimonial from the aba right
0: yeah yeah all right well um now that we have i think sufficiently addressed taxpayer money and uh it's being misspent uh or misused or abused in some cases uh and it's just interesting they both intersect with the current attorney general. Uh, now's a good time to talk about the state budget. Uh, and that is why policy analyst Emma Morris is with us today, of course. Emma, a couple of weeks ago, during the Oklahoma Policy Annual Budget Summit, you gave a presentation on the subject uh, of the state budget that was really excellent. Can you well, Let's hit the highlights? Like maybe can you start with what kind of shape is the state in financially as we go into this session?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, So we are actually in a relatively good spot as we go into this legislative session. Um, The Board of Equalization has estimated that we'll have more revenue this year than we have in recent years, um, which I'm sure everyone has heard has led to a lot of talk about the largest budget in state history and things like that. It's important to remember that um, Just because in uh, nominal dollars, it's the largest budget, doesn't mean that we have the same amount, the same capacity to invest in our state services and the same capacity to spend. Um, When we adjust for inflation and for population growth, um, this budget is uh, about a billion dollars less than it was in the year 2000. Um, It is the largest budget we've seen since fiscal year 2010, uh, which is, you know, good news. Uh, That means we have some opportunities to maybe make some investments in Oklahomans. Um, But we also have to remember that, you know, Oklahoma sees ups and downs. We see mountaintops and valleys. And so taking steps now to think about what do we do whenever we see uh, another valley um, will be really important this session as well.
3: So, Emma, when you say that we have the largest Budget that we've seen since 2010, um, please tell me why we shouldn't immediately cut taxes.
1: Great question. Um, the the um, inclination is often to cut taxes whenever we see these high uh, revenue years, but that is pretty much the reason that we've never made it back to uh, the amount of revenue that we had in that year 2000 because when we have mountaintop, we are quick to cut, And that money has um, rarely if ever come back. So we have this thing in Oklahoma called State Question 640. I'm sure a lot of your listeners know about it. Um, But basically in Oklahoma, in order to raise revenue, uh, a bill has to get a three-fourths majority in the legislature or a majority vote of the people. And so there's been one major revenue raising bill that has uh, passed through the legislature since State Question 640 was passed in 1992. Um, and so effectively, once we cut taxes, they don't come back, right? It takes a whole lot of political will to make them come back. And again, that's only happened one time.
3: So Emma, I thought the way that it works is that we cut taxes. And then when we cut taxes, that's like pouring gasoline on the fire. That is the Oklahoma economy. And that money comes back into the treasury tenfold, uh, in the form of increased revenue. So If we've cut taxes so many times, why don't we have, like, why are we now just bursting at the seams with all the, like, revenue? Are you saying that that's wrong?
1: I am indeed saying that that's wrong. Um, We have been sold that story for a while, that um, tax cuts are going to be helpful for the economy. They're going to ultimately be good for state revenue. Um, That hasn't really played out in Oklahoma. Um, we have consistently cut taxes and we haven't seen a massive economic boom that we thought we would. Um, we have instead seen, uh, you know, growth that's below the regional average of our surrounding states. We've seen lower job growth. Um, ultimately this this can tell us that these tax cuts haven't worked um, and maybe we should, maybe it's time to start thinking about taking a different approach of investing those public dollars um, in services that will then, you know, services that we all use and then those services and that money in the economy is going to come back and bolster our state budget as well.
3: Emma, so, you um, sound like a socialist.
1: <laughs> I
2: have a couple of questions for you and this will be helpful context to um, our listeners, because one of the things that are also mentioned in this season um, is that Oklahoma has a lot of money right now and money in the reserves due to um, the inflow of American Rescue Plan Act funds from CARES Act funds and other pandemic uh, relief support. Um, and that's really kept the state um afloat in, in the head in ways that, you know, could have been devastating over the past few years. Can you talk about um, that challenge of reliance on one-time funds with that conversation about um, the loss of tax revenue? Because I feel like that's one piece of why lawmakers are so eager to find ways to, I guess, what they frame as putting money back in the pockets of Oklahomans cutting kind of these taxes is because it seems like it's a sunny day, right? And then the second question I wanted to lift for you, um, because we, we talked about, you know, so well, um, ensuring that we have a budget that adequately meets the needs and not looking at necessarily a dollar value. Um, talk about what are those needs that are out there, right? What still isn't being met even with a record budget year by nominal
1: value. Yeah, for sure. Um, So one-time funding, you're right, we do have a lot um, coming in. We have increased tax revenue this year. We, like you said, have federal money from the CARES Act and from the American Rescue Plan. And it's good. It's good that we have all this money. It's ho- It will hopefully be good whenever the legislature makes those investments in things that we've been putting off or one-time projects that need to happen. Um, but the thing is, this money isn't going to last forever, right? The federal money won't last forever, just like the increased tax revenue won't last forever. We're going to see um, it just like with any economy, and especially in Oklahoma, when we rely so much on oil and gas, we're going to see um, ups and downs, right? And so if we Do things like cut taxes now when we do have this influx of money, um, we're going to see we're going to feel those impacts much harder in future years whenever we have lean years. Um, So it's really important that we um, approach this legislative session in a way that we approach this legislation, this legislative session, not with the intent of cutting taxes because we have this high revenue, but rather you know, thoughtfully thinking about maybe how can we sustain some of this increased revenue? What can we do now to prepare for the future? And then as far as, um, you know, some of the needs that Oklahoma has, there are a ton and I can't, I couldn't begin to name all of them right now. But I will start by saying that um, the public agencies, the state agencies that are providing services to Oklahomans, like the ones you guys were talking about earlier, um, the healthcare authority, the public, the Department of Education, so many other agencies—they know what sort of money they would need to meet some of the needs in Oklahoma, right? So the legislature has been holding budget hearings, asking the legislature, asking these agencies what they need, um, and I think it's really important that the legislature listen to that, right? These are the experts; they're the people doing the work every day um, that are that know what Oklahomans need. So. Um, Hopefully, we are, hopefully these budget hearings will um, be taken seriously and agencies will be able to um, honestly say what they need in order to continue to meet the needs of Oklahomans. Um, one example that is often used um, to talk about the lack of, of investment in Oklahoma um, is our waiting list for people with intellectual and d- developmental disabilities. Um, there are over 5,000 people in Oklahoma who need um, home and community-based care in order to live their everyday lives, right? But they, these 5,000 people have not been able to get that assistance. Um, You know, Oklahoma could invest in that program. We could make the choice to um, ensure that all of those individuals are able to get that care, uh, but we haven't done that yet. Um, We also have a really, even after Medicaid expansion, we have a high rate of uninsurance. We have a lot of um, pregnant and postpartum people who don't have health insurance. And so, again, the state could choose to invest in those individuals, choose to make sure that no one leaves the hospital after giving birth without coverage, but we haven't made that choice yet. Um, and then, and don't we I'll- need revenue to give $100,000 to our best and brightest teachers? <laughs> we absolutely need to invest in public education. Um, you know, I think that most of us, all of us on this call would agree that public education is um, like a cornerstone of our society. And um, as much as we can invest and as much as we can support teachers and students, we're going to see those benefits for years to come, right? Making that investment now is like a down payment on the future of our state.
2: Absolutely. And I know I said that in jest, but um, in all seriousness, you know, we still have other areas because one of the areas is we haven't raise salaries of uh, professional staff, right So uh, when teachers saw that that pay increase, there were others who support the education infrastructure who weren't able to see those same increases and even the the teacher um, salary increase still wasn't enough you know for for what teachers need to be able to um, have a strong quality of life in this economy, right And so uh, thanks for lifting you know just a few of the many things that we could do with that revenue.
0: Yeah, in your presentation slides, which I will link to in the show notes, so uh, listeners, both of you, if you will, if you're interested in this, in the show notes, there's a link and it has all the slides from the and the video of uh, the presentation from the annual budget summit. Uh, it's actually slide 22 that I'm referring to. It says lower taxes and lower spending aren't boosting our economy, and this was such an eye-opening slide, right? Where it, Uh, I think, and you can explain it better than me, Emma, but I think the takeaway is the things that we are told are going to boost the economy in many cases have had the opposite effect or at the very least, it has not been as pronounced as it is in uh, our region, right? So it's different for us. Um, Can you specifically maybe explain the impact of uh, taxes, spending, and then the the output, um, and I like how you guys broke out oil and gas separate from the rest of the of the economy.
1: Yeah, for sure. Um, so I did this in conjunction with my former colleague, Paul Shin. We got to work on this together, um, and I definitely want to give credit where it's due. Um, so we looked at the impact of taxes and spending in Oklahoma and then in the, the our surrounding states. So we looked at the average of our surrounding states. And um, I'll start with taxes. So in Oklahoma, we spend almost uh, 12% less, or I'm sorry, we tax almost 12% less um, than we used to. And in our region, th- The average of our surrounding states tax about 5% less than they used to. And so um, all of us have cut taxes, right? Or the majority of these states have cut taxes. Um, But we have not seen anywhere near the um, output or the job growth that our surrounding states have. Um, If we look at spending, we are spending less now. Um, whereas our surrounding states are spending more. And it's a little confusing because um, how how are they taxing less and spending more, but it, it has a lot to do with like federal spending, um, I, maybe an increase in things like fees on certain things, you know, tolls, things like that. Um, so however, however they've gotten there, they are spending um, more and they're spending more than we are. Um, so we looked at output generally, and then we also looked at output without oil and gas. Um, at first, when we when you look at output, um, and that's just you know economic output. So, what sort of growth have we seen in the economy? Um, it just general output. We are about on par with our surrounding region. We've seen. Um, we appear to have seen pretty typical growth. Um, But what Paul and I did is we took out the oil and gas impact on that output because, as we all know, the oil and gas industry is very volatile. A lot lot of legislators have pointed to that as a problem in our state and the way that we run the budget. Um, So it's a very unpredictable industry. So we took out oil and gas from that economic growth for us and for our surrounding states. And when we do that, we can see that our economic growth has actually been significantly less than the growth in our surrounding states. So that's like a whole lot of numbers and policy talk. But basically, it's telling us that um, although we have been told that lower taxes is good, that lower public spending is good. um, That's not actually playing out in Oklahoma.
0: Yeah, I remember when you showed the slide, and I was like, wait, so we so we've cut taxes more than other states, but our output is not near as high as them. Uh, and it was it was such an eye opening uh, moment. And then as you go on in the presentation, you know you explain how um, that those tax cuts uh, and spending cuts, more importantly, have. Tax cuts have benefited some people way more than others and spending has spending cuts have hurt some people way more than others. And it's opposite groups, right? Tax cuts tend to really benefit the wealthy and spending cuts tend to really hurt the poor. And I, mean, I think this, I, I applaud OK Policy because you find new ways to say the same thing year after year, right? Our tax system is regressive. It's hurting people with lower income. Why is it so regressive? What can we do to fix it? Uh, you know, people of color pay more. Women end up paying more. People who live in rural areas end up paying a higher percentage of their income and taxes. These are all like super important things that I think we all need to think about when we're buying groceries, when we're at the gas pump, when we're out spending money, looking at our at our checkbooks, right, on Friday and wondering how you're going to get through the rest of the month uh, and recognize that there is a direct correlation on... State tax policy, right, and how much money that we as workers, as individuals, get in our paychecks, right? Like it has an impact on everybody's paycheck.
1: Yeah, and uh, I was just going to add that all of that is absolutely true. Also, spending cuts hurt all of us, right? Like we we often think that spending cuts means, um, you know less spending on things like medicaid or other services that maybe um i don't qualify for right but in reality spending cuts hurt all of us it means our roads are worse off it means our kids um have teachers that are paid less it means our textbooks are older um, so the spending cuts that we've seen really have um hurt everyone in oklahoma right it's not just an impact on on low-income oklahoma so that's something to keep in mind as well
2: Emma, I would love for you to talk about the process because I think just as much as we are talking about the system in itself and the ways that our tax system is designed, the process also plays a role in continuing <laughs> how um, our system remains the same year after year, and and who gets to have input and all of that. So can you talk about how Oklahoma is different maybe from other places and some of the challenges in our appropriation and budget processes?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. And Bailey, feel free to jump in as well, since I know you spend so much time at the Capitol working on this too. Um, So objectively, Oklahoma is a less transparent place than it used to be. Um, We recently released a report on the transparency of the of the budget process. And spoiler, it's not great um, compared to other states. Um, we introduce our budget later in session. We um, have fewer budget bills. We uh, pass the budget much quicker um, in relation to other states, but also than we used to in Oklahoma. So, um, you know, in the 80s and 90s um, there were a lot more budget bills in Oklahoma, a lot more people had influence in the process. Um, Obviously I was not around then, but um, as I said earlier, Paul Shin was actually um, working in the house during the 90s. And so he was able to sort of compare how it used to be uh, through his experiences and um, talking with people who were there as well. um, And then what we do now. So as far as what we do now, um, there are, there's typically one budget bill. The whole budget goes into one bill. There are limits bills that say, you know, this much money has to be spent on this in the Department of Education or whatever. Um, and so that one budget bill is typically negotiated on, um, negotiated by different people. To uh, the Speaker of the House, the Senate pro tem, the governor, a few other folks. Um, and they come to a consensus and then typically the last week or two of session, there's a press conference where they talk about what's in the budget. And then, um, within a few days, the budget is rushed through committee and then, um, voted on in, uh, in, in, in the chamber of both chambers. And, um, Typically what this means is that there's not really time for any real debate or legislative um, questioning. Uh, It's typically, you know, the expectation is that you vote for it and that it passes. Um, And it really doesn't give people in the minority party or even people in the majority party who have questions or disagreements time. And then the last thing I'll say on that is that In Oklahoma, we don't have any opportunity for public uh, comment, right? So people can contact their legislator and say, you know, I want you to vote like this on this on the budget, Um, but they can't go to a budget hearing and say, I wish that the state did this. And that's, again, that's actually not normal. A lot of other states do have that. The majority of other states do have that option. Um, And so Oklahomans are really kept out of the budget process. Um, which is really keeping us from being able to comment on how it's going and to, and to make our voices heard about how we feel.
3: Emma, why is it so different here than other places? Is it, is it just structure or why is it worse now than it used to be? What is, what is different about Oklahoma? I I saw a stat the other day, I I might've even been from okay okay policy um, that like the average state legislature debates their budget for like 82 days or something. And in Oklahoma, it's like four. Like what what allows, what do other states do differently that their legislature um, spends so much more time talking about the budget in view of the public?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. And that stat did come from OK Policy. Um, that's in our report, I believe. So um, in other states, they often introduce their budget you know first couple weeks of session and it is voted on just like any other bill so it has to pass committee it has to pass the house the senate committee and then the senate floor and so in oklahoma our budget is really exempt from those rules um we don't have to follow that whereas every other bill has to go through that process um and the well, other Emma,
2: i would add technically it does but it's so rushed right right it goes through the joint committee on appropriations budget known as jcap right where both chambers are hearing the same bill at the same time and then it advances to the floor and then so it goes through almost this expedited process that technically checks the box but it's not the same it doesn't have the same length of time as these other bills right and it's it's when we're talking about you know transparency and processes and things you know, it technically does those things, but not in a way that truly draws the ability for the people or even different agencies and others to, to truly weigh in on the implications of those appropriation decisions. I, I worked in Arkansas for two years, and that's something I loved when I worked for that think tank was being able to testify before legislative committees and talk about, in in my area at the time, education policy. And then coming back home to Oklahoma, not being able to do that, it just, it makes it so challenging. And so I, I, I appreciate you raising that point that like in other places, the budget bill is treated like other bills to where the people and even the press have the opportunity to have public conversation and dialogue about it. But that quick turnaround through, The committee, then straight to the floor, then to the governor's desk, gives zero time for the people to deliberate. Well, but
3: that's my question. So in other states, is it required that the bill be introduced? Because that's the thing. Like what Bailey said, like they rush it through. And there are some special rules that apply to the budget. Like in other states, I mean, I would guess that in most states, just like in most governments, the budget is the most contentious thing. And so what we have always heard from Oklahomans, like the, the reason for this as well, you know, the budget's the thing that's like, we have to do the most happening over. So we're going to get all the other stuff done first, because that's not as hard. Like in, to well, me, it's not, it's to me, there
2: strategy.
3: should be, well, strategy, sure.
2: Right. Because me, bring everybody's should... stuff together. So then you can't even every, everybody right. either wins and loses at the same time. Right. Like right. that's the rationale.
3: But to me, to me, there should be a rule that's like the budget bill, like the budget has to be introduced like the first week, like it has to be, or like maybe now the, the flip side of this is if you did this, they probably wouldn't get anything else done. You can't pass any other legislation until you pass the budget, right? Like, but then you know what, what would happen is it would be at the last week of May And they'd be like, well, we finished the budget. Now we have four days to pass 2000 bills. So yeah, and
1: some states (laughs) do have like either legislation or rules saying you have to introduce it by this time, or it has to meet every other um, deadline, like the deadline that every other regular order bill needs. And so some states do have that in Oklahoma. We could do that. We could pass legislation. We could also, you know, change the, um, rules in the in in the legislation in the legislature um so we have a different a couple different ways to get there the other thing i always um like to say here is that this isn't the result of like current legislators choices it's sort of the result of a it's the culmination of a lot of choices over um the last 30-ish years where um, people have changed one rule here and then another rule there and so um we it, you know i i just want to reiterate that it's not you know the current appropriation shares are trying to make this process less transparent it's just that we've gotten here over the course of a few decades they're also not trying to make it more transparent
0: <laughs> that's fair but, but I, I will say though, two people chairman wallace yeah chairman wallace and chairman thompson are um i think do have an interest in transparency and, and i they have I mean, they can only push back so far, right? We have seen in the in recent years, right, where an AB chairman pushed back too hard and lost their their chairpersonship, right? So um, there's a recognition that like maybe they could do more harm or more good than harm if they toe the line a little bit. Uh, I, Emma, to your point about the condition we're in now is a result of decisions that were made in the past, right? And and some history. I do want to remind. Uh, listeners about, I mean, honestly, what was going on when we first started Let's Fix This in 2016. The budget in 2016 was uh, terrible. The complete opposite of this year, right? We had a $1.6 billion budget shortfall. Everybody was getting cut on top of a decade of cuts they'd already received. Like every state agency was getting cut. And the reason that we were in that hole was that Mm -hmm uh about 10 years before that not quite 10 years 8 years before that in the 2008 2009 financial crisis right the economy tanked across the country including here in Oklahoma a little bit later but still tanked and uh you know to to invigorate our economy the state legislature in like 2010 ish around there 2009 passed a tax cut or they passed a trigger bill that said Okay, the economy tax. is low, but if it grows, if the economy grows a certain percentage, then it triggers a reduction in the state income tax rate, right? And so that makes, because they're like, well, we don't, we won't need as much money. If the economy is growing, we can tax less and keep a flat budget, which makes a lot of sense, except the fact that the economy tanked and then started to improve. So the economy grew from like abysmal to mostly terrible, right? Like it <laughs> went from... Negative five to negative four, and that triggered our tax cut. Well, we weren't out of the hole, and so it compounded over several years and led to this, you know, one point six billion dollar budget shortfall. And and from talking to legislators then, most of whom weren't in office when those when that trigger bill was passed, they all were like, "Ooh, man, that was a bad idea way back then. I wasn't here. It wasn't my bad idea." but now we got to figure out how to fix it and none of them were willing yeah to
3: but but they all do it vote, they all voted for the people who passed it though right i mean let's get serious like it's not like they wouldn't have done the same thing and, and the thing was what's, what's what's so frustrating about this is one people you know people like emma and the folks at okay policy have been saying this for 25 years not you specifically emma but um but but you know there's this idea that like there's this this caricature that like conservatives only want to cut taxes and progressives only want to raise taxes which is probably to some degree true except that both of them are important both of them are important policy tools that the legislature really should have in their pocket to use if they need to. If the economy is tanking, a tax cut actually makes a lot of sense, right? Like you can put money in people's pocket and try to stimulate spending to jolt the economy out of its out of its stagnation. But then when the economy improves, one, you can use a tax cut to try and keep it from getting, right, you can use a tax increase to try and keep it from getting too hot and trying to control inflation, but also to put money in the bank for the future, with, you want to have you want to have both levers, right? And what I what the but the folks at Twenty Third and Lincoln seem like they've never been able to understand is that when you cut and cut and cut and cut and cut and cut, then when you have a period like 2016 where you could really benefit from a tax cut, you can't do it anymore because tax cut if you cut taxes again, there will literally be no money. Right. Where, whereas, if the if the income tax had been at nine percent in twenty sixteen, you could have cut it by three percent for two years and maybe juiced the economy. Like if they would if they would not be so short sighted and only think six months or one election cycle at a time, they would actually make their jobs so much easier.
2: But Scott, but that's how it's been structurally designed, and it's not even about what political party is in power right these structures have been there for a long time even when democrats had control republicans had control and it takes an act of god <laughs> oftentimes for major reforms to happen because if if the current minority was in the majority they would be using the same tools to advance their perspective on the budget, right? And so I think that's the other piece that we have to keep in mind too, is like, this isn't something new over the past 12 to 15 years with, you know, a a shift in in party control, but this is a real conversation of, you know, how do we depoliticize some of the processes that don't make it advantageous to whichever, you know, ideology gets control but more ha- more so build processes that um are neutral and fair that also ensure you know involvement of the people and, and and the hard part is how you get there is tough because this has been rooted into to the politics of it all
0: that's exactly right Bailey and I think uh it's worth noting right that there is a role here that we haven't discussed. It's not just legislators, it is voters, it is us, right? Some of, not that we are the ones that are passing policy, but we have a voice, right? We have the ability to influence policy uh, for the greater good, right? And so uh, as we say at the end of every episode, decisions are made by those who show up and by simply showing up, right? By sending an email, by going to the Capitol and uh, or a phone call talking to your legislators and let them know that you're paying attention. That is something that most people do not do. Right. And it doesn't, it doesn't take that much, right. Having 30,000 teachers show up at the Capitol is a powerful statement. That was cool. Uh, but we can do, have the same effect without, without take off work and be quite so flashy and cold, right? Like we can, we can show up by, by making phone calls, by sending emails, by having those conversations Um, with our elected officials whenever possible.
2: Well, speaking of being able to show up in opportunities, there is an opportunity for listeners on Tuesday um, who live in Oklahoma City to participate in a mayoral election. So those who are voters in Oklahoma City, be sure that you are showing up to the polls next Tuesday.
0: That's right. Oklahoma City, Norman, and a bunch of other towns have mayoral elections next week on February 8th. Also, uh, as we wrap up here, well, before we do that, let's say thank you to our guest, Emma Morris. Thank you for being here with us today.
1: Yeah, thanks so much for having me.
0: Emma, of course, is uh, a healthcare and finance policy analyst with the Oklahoma Policy Institute. You can learn more about them at okpolicy.org. Bailey and Scott, thank you for being here as well.
2: Of course. Thank you, Andy.
3: Wouldn't miss it.
0: Uh, listeners, thank you for being here. Don't forget, Monday the 7th is the first day of session. The governor will be delivering his state the state address, which I am certain we will all unpack next week here on the podcast uh, and hear what his priorities are for policy and budget. Um, he's already tweeting hints about it being related to education. I'm very curious to see what it actually is. Uh, and then, as we said, Tuesday the 8th is an election for... Uh, a big chunk of the state. If you don't already know if you have an election, you should go to the election board website, uh, elections.ok.gov, and log in to the voter tool to find out. Uh, Make sure that you are showing up for every election for which you are eligible. All right, listeners, that's it for this week. We'll say it again. Decisions are made by those who show up. See you next week.